to Acts 2, starting in verse 42. Same as this morning. Just couldn't get enough. Starting in 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, just such as should be saved. Well, I'm delighted to be with you this evening. I'm very grateful for your presence tonight. And I'm so thankful for your interest and your desire in things spiritual that you would set aside the cares of this life and the pleasures of this life and come and be with us to study and to worship God together. What a privilege it is and what a blessing it is to be able to come to this building and for the church to assemble together and to worship God as he's told us to in the pages of the New Testament. I want to appreciate these men, express my appreciation for these men who've led us in our worship today. And um, uh, I'm grateful for each one of them for the beautiful singing stand. Thank you for that. And these beautiful songs, I really enjoy singing these wonderful songs that we have been singing tonight. And then, of course, the prayers. We're very grateful for the fervent scriptural prayers that have been offered tonight and for the scriptural reading. I'm very grateful. You and I started a uh, study today on the marks of faithfulness, and we were looking at Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 specifically, and I always enjoy studying the book of Acts because it has such an important uh, part of my spiritual life. It helps me understand so many important things. As I said this morning, all the Old Testament's looking toward it, and all the New Testament's looking back to it, and you reach that point in Peter's sermon where they ask, what shall we do? And he tells them, uh, you need to repent of your sins and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. You need to be baptized to receive forgiveness. And some 3,000 obeyed the gospel. But then we might ask the question, what then? Then we have this summary of the early church, which begins for us, verse 42, continues on down through verse 47. And it really talks about what they were like and what they did and how they conducted themselves and how they thought. I've always been interested in these Christian people of the Bible. Uh, I've always been interested in what they believed and what they thought and how they lived. And I've always wanted to be more like them as I study from the pages of the Word of God. And I find this to be a very fascinating and very helpful passage indeed for that purpose. One of the things that we learn today is that these people... um, They were teachable people. You could teach them. You know, sometimes people are just not teachable. Sometimes they want to argue about this, or they're just very very hard-hearted about the matter, or their minds are made up, or they have some kind of prejudiced idea, preconceived idea in their minds already before they ever really look at the evidence of God's Word. Jesus faced that in the lives of Pharisees and Sadducees. They had already made their minds up, and it wasn't him. 
They wanted another Savior. They wanted another Messiah. This was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And they weren't going to accept them. Many would be persuaded by the preaching and teaching and miracles of Jesus, but most would not. And Old Testament prophets prophesied about that. Jesus made mention of their hardness of heart. They weren't teachable. Now, I don't want to be that way. I want to be a person who listens to the will and the Word of God, who is open-minded and and has a heart receptive to God's Word. You remember in the book of Revelation, over and over again, John would say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And we need to be a teachable kind of people. But fellowship was a part of the life of the early Christians, and that's taught to us in the passage, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And I defined it just to help me in my mind keep it straight, one anothering. That's just a phrase I came up with. It's a a commonality. Sometimes it's defined or translated sharing. Sometimes it's translated partnership. It's a fellowship. The right hand of fellowship is being extended and we're in concert with each other in the matter. The Bible tells us that we're in fellowship with those who are obedient to the cause of Christ we're in fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, and also 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 are Bible passages that we discussed in this matter. This fellowship was a very sweet thing for them, and it is a very sweet thing for us. And then I made mention of them being very worshipful, and I saw that point in this matter of the breaking of bread as it's referenced to us in verse 42. I'm in Acts 2.42, and I'm rehearsing just very briefly some of the important matters that we studied today. And we studied the fact that these people worship God, and they were filled with a love for God and a devotion for God. The bread that he has reference to in verse 42 is the Lord's Supper. And again, I make mention of the fact that the definite article is used twice in that. It's not found in your translations twice. It's found once. But it's in the Greek text twice. He's saying, the breaking of the bread, and he has particular bread in mind. And you and I talked about some of the syntax and some of the uh, figures of speech associated with that. The common meal comes up in verse 46, something I'll talk a little bit more about tonight. But they were worshipful people. This is a mark of faithfulness. These people were very trustful people in God. They would pray to God. And uh, just as we've done tonight, they would pray on a regular basis. Uh, The Bible says, always be of a ready mind to pray. Luke chapter 8 and verse 11, men ought always to pray, Jesus said. And of course, Jesus was teaching them how to pray, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6. Prayer was an important part of their life, just as it should be an important part of our life. One thing, though, that I think that I want to make mention of is the fact that they were filled with reverence in their worship toward God. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's verse 43. These are marks of faithfulness, reverence, reverence toward God. We don't refer to God or refer to the work of God in a flippant, haphazard way, but we're filled with awe, filled with awe. And I used, the, used it from the standpoint this morning of, of being filled with awe at what God does. And we can look at the world in which we live, and it's amazing. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, verse 1. But yet, just God working in our lives is amazing and should fill us with reverence and awe. And I think the older we get, the more we can look back and we can think to ourselves, yeah, I think God providentially was helping me there. 
or God providentially was saying no to me. God providentially was saying, I want you to go in this direction here. Uh, We should be filled with awe and reverence over the fact that God continues to work in a wonderful way in our lives and that we should never forget that fact. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we get the notion, well, God doesn't do anything anymore. We get the idea God doesn't do anything. And we've been very strong about the point that we don't have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit today. And I still insist on that point. You and I have studied about it a lot, and we've considered that matter. But we should never get the idea God doesn't do anything. God continues to work in our lives, and it's a blessing that we receive. Providentially, he works. And at the same time, the point I think we should see today, just as they saw back then, verse 43, it should fill our hearts with awe. It should fill our hearts with reverence to know that we are working together with God and that God is working with us in this wonderful work of the church of the Lord and the evangelizing of the lost. But as you might surmise, Verse 42 and verse 43 are not all. This paragraph continues. And so I felt the need to go on with our study tonight, even though we talk about teachability and we talk about fellowship and we talk about their worshipfulness and their trustfulness and their reverence. I think one of the things we need to understand about them is that they were united. And this is very clearly taught for us in the pages of the Scripture, verse 44 tonight. And all who believed were together. Now, that was a wonderful thing, wonderful way to describe them in that particular day and time. They were all together, and they had all things common, the text says. I'm in Acts chapter 2, and I'm in verse 44, and I'm seeing marks of faithfulness that the early church had that I should have in my life, and that this church should have in its life, that we should be a united body of Jesus Christ. This was the very thing Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17 that his believers be united. It is amazing to me how that we can be so divided. Uh, But if we would just strip away the preconceived ideas and the prejudices that we should not have and just absorb and imbibe the engrafted word which is able to save our souls, we would be united and we would have this togetherness. Bible writers in illustrating and teaching the importance of being united as the body of Christ would talk about the physical body. And it's a wonderful metaphor, and it's a wonderful way to teach the lesson of being united. Now let me ask you this. Which member of my body would say, you know, I'm tired of being joined up with this crowd. I want loose. I want to be independent. I want to be a free spirit and be out on my own. Which member of my physical body would act like that? Which member of my physical body would think that way? I'm a free spirit. I'm a freewheeling thinking spirit here. And I, you know, I'm just tired of uh, uh, doing things the old way, every way, every day. And so now I want to be out on my own and I, I don't want to be a part of this body anymore. That's not the way it works. I'll tell you how my body works. And I'm sure yours is the same way. The mouth is bring the food on up here. Get it on up here. And then the stomach is saying to the mouth, get it chewed up and send it on down. And then other parts of the body are saying to the stomach, get the thing digested and get it. We want our part. Every aspect of the body is working in concert with itself. And no member of my body or your body is going to stand back and say, I'm tired of you. 
I'm tired of being a hand. I'm tired of being an ear. I'm tired of being an eye. I want to be something independent. I want to strike out on my own. They were united as the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. And Bible writers, the physical body is a good illustration of that. He tells us in 44, and all who believed were together. Now, I can't hardly talk about this matter without including 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so I'm going to go to that particular passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and um, read just a little bit about Paul's discussion of the matter. And a lot can be learned from this. And you and I have talked about this passage before, but I want to bring it up again. And, you know, there's others that come to my mind, Ephesians chapter 4 and various passages like that. But I think I want to spend a moment with you on this matter of being united and how important it is. We need to really focus on being united. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ in his body, you see. The body has many members, but it's just one. It's united. Then he talks about our baptism into Christ, verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. He's talking about the fact that we learned about the word of God and we were led by the spirit of God to study the word of God and do what the spirit has said. And it's that point, that baptism that transitions us into the body. We now become a member of the body because of our baptism and following the leadership and the guidance of God the Holy Spirit through the written word, the Bible. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made <clears throat> to drink of one spirit. I don't have the time really to talk about this, but when he talks about slaves and when he talks about free men, he's talking about everybody. You know that. Uh, you know that there were people who were on the very low social level of the cultural level there, and <clears throat> it doesn't matter who you are, you could be on that very low level. Still, when you're baptized into Christ, you become part of the body. Then he begins to talk about the body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. He talks about these body parts in caricature. He's, you know, he has them speak as if they're speaking for themselves. Well, if the foot said, well, if the hand said, well, if the ear said that. And if the ear, 16, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Now, you ought to mark that verse. I want to camp down on that just for a brief moment, verse 18. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. Jesus put this church together the way he chose. It is not my church. It is not the Christian church. It's not the community church. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. And he put it together the way he chose to put it together. I didn't put it together. I don't have any right to organize it. I don't have any right to change it. I don't have any right to talk about the terms of entrance and make up some of my own. I don't have any right to try to come up with some purposeful statement 
for the church other than what I read in the pages of the New Testament. This church belongs to him by right of purchase. He died for it. And he organized it. And what he wants is for that body to be united. Now he goes on with this particular matter, but I'm skipping on down to verse 25, which really is the point at hand. But there, that there may be no divisions in the body. That's the point. But that the members have the same care for one another. When I read about the marks of faithfulness in the New Testament church, and I read about the marks of faith in this uh, congregation of Jerusalem, the first church, I read about men and women who were united together. One group didn't pull off that way, and another group didn't pull off that way. But they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and of prayers. They were filled with reverence and awe, and they were all united in this matter, just like one body, one family. Pay special attention in your families to the young ones. When you have a little baby coming to the family, that's a special time. And we pay special attention to the little babies who come into the family. They're young, and they need special time, special attention, special nourishments given to them. Pay special attention in your families to the weak. Sometimes you'll have a family member that's a weak family member. And they're physically challenged, handicapped in some particular way. Maybe they're weak in some way. Pay particular attention in your families to the sick. Sometimes in your physical one at home. And we pay particular attention to that. We give time and attention to the sick. Should it not be the same with the spiritual body of Jesus Christ and the family of God? That we got young ones that have been baptized into Christ. Sometimes these young ones may be older than we are. But now they're babes in Christ. Paul said they need to be fed with milk and not with meat. He said to the church at Corinth, Hitherto you're not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able. You're babes in Christ and you need to be fed the spiritual food that babies would accept and embrace. Sometimes they're weak. Sometimes weak Christians need special attention, need special teaching, special direction. More time is involved in helping the sick. We need to be cognizant of that and considerate of that because we're united. We're together as the family of Christ. What a great thing it is. And I'll tell you one thing. I just believe this all my heart. That if the body of Christ could ever get united as a brotherhood, world, look out. Here we come. But we argue about this little thing and we argue about that thing We're upset over this and we're upset over that. And some of those things are worthy of consideration. And some of those things are worthy of focusing on and discussing. But we wouldn't have those problems if we would focus on the Word of God and focus on our love for God and love for Christ and love for each other. And that the body of Christ could come together in a united way, like I see it here in Acts chapter 2. Then this country should ought ought to look out. Here they come. They're the united people that belong to Jesus Christ, the church of Christ, the people that belong to Christ. It's a mark of fellowship. It's a mark of faithfulness that we be united like they were. 
And I love to talk more about that, but I want to look at another element, and I see that they are very benevolent people. And had all, and all who believed were together, and had all things. The Bible talks about that particular matter. They had all things in common. What do you think they had in common there? Well, they had their possessions in common. Now, let me say as a caveat in the very beginning, he's not talking about communism or socialism here. That's a political system the Bible doesn't know anything about. Under a communist type of regime, you give everything, the state belongs, the state owns everything, and they deal out a little as they decide what you should need or what you should have. They'll decide that. That wasn't what was going on in Acts chapter 2. The reason that comes to my mind, I was studying the Bible, one of these fellows out there in California one time had kind of long hair, and, and uh, you know the type that I'm trying to describe. And he says, well, man... <laughs> Well, man, he said, they pooled all their money together. I said, well, you have to understand what in common means. They gave as it was needed. It is not a socialistic system. It is not a cult type thing as he was trying to make it out to be. It was not a communistic political system. It was a system whereby... As the need arose, they gave of their means. And indeed, the need did arise. Turn with me to um, Acts chapter 4. I love this. It's sort of a companion passage in this matter in verse 32. Uh, Acts 4 sounds a lot like Acts chapter 2 in this paragraph. But it helps me understand what's going on with regard to the matter of benevolence and their generosity toward those who are in need. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. See, that sounds a lot like verse 46 of Acts chapter 2. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had every... And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I envision the situation that's happening here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 with regard to the giving of their means to those who were in need. The call probably goes out. We need help here. And those brethren responded with whatever they could. It was not a matter of laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. They had already given their hearts to God and they were willing to give as it was needed. And there was a great need in the early church as it was growing in that day and time. It reminds me of the tabernacle, and the call goes forth to bring material for the tabernacle. And the children of Israel, boy, they responded with generous hearts. In Exodus chapter 36, verse 5 and 7, 5 through 7. And finally, Moses says, that's enough. It's enough. We have enough. And that situation I think that you have in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 where the call goes out there is a need for these brethren there is a need to help them and then it's not just we sell everything we give it all to the church and we distribute as a little here and a little there in a cultic type situation as some misunderstand the passage to be but it comes a point in time where these brethren would say it is enough we have enough now to meet the need that is before us one thing is very clear They had generous hearts. And the Bible teaches generous heart, that we are to be a benevolent people as they were. And I have to think about 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
So I want to spend just a brief moment with 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I know that I'm speaking to a people who love to give, a congregation who has a generous heart about them. But at the same time, we can do better. And we can really come to understand these important qualities that are set before us. Uh, as you notice, know, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's encouraging uh, the church at Corinth. Corinth's in Greece, you see. These churches up in Macedonia have already given, and he's encouraging them to give. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And so they had given, and there was a dire need. The call is going out for the help. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us of taking part in the relief of the saints. What he's saying there was those brethren up in Macedonia were begging us, we want to take part in that. We want to have a part in that. You're taking up a collection for suffering saints in Jerusalem. Let's have a part in that. And he said they gave of their means, and they gave beyond their means. They really gave more than what they normally would have to give, and they were poor. And he's saying, now this should motivate you to finish the task of the collection when I come. So it will be ready for me to take to those suffering saints. Notice to encourage them, he tells them in verse 9, which really is a uh, passage that uh, really strikes deep down in my heart, and I'm sure yours as well. For you know the grace of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What he's trying to do is motivate them. If you need motivation with regard to the giving, just look at the grace of God. How could we not give, seeing how that God has blessed us and blessed us and blessed us? Why, he says, now look at what Christ did. God gave his son, and Christ died on the cross. So he took on this poverty so that we could become rich, rich in faith and rich in grace, and rich in the blessings which God has in store for those who obediently follow him. And if that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what really would. I started thinking about giving like that some time ago. I started thinking about the point of grace that has been received, that it is a wonderful opportunity. I have received so much. I didn't deserve it. I didn't have it owed to me, but God gave it to me. I desperately needed this forgiveness. I desperately needed this salvation that God has in store for all of us, but I didn't deserve it. But God loves me, and God saw it and made it possible that I could receive. And I look a lot at giving like I do forgiveness. In forgiveness, we forgive and we don't keep We don't keep ledger sheets. We forgive and we forget. And that's the way it ought to be with our giving. We ought to give as we've been prospered. Give because God has given to us in such a wonderful way. But not try to keep a tally sheet. Giving and not expecting special favors in return. They were benevolent people, and they were a people who gave and gave from their heart. Teachable, filled with fellowship, one anothering, worshipful, 
why they were praying people, reverent people, united people, benevolent people, verse 44, but also they were a people who were joyful. And I really think that this is what we're reading in the pages of the Bible at this point in time. It talks about them going to the temple. I don't see anywhere in this text where it says they went to the temple to worship under the old Jewish dispensation like they had before. What they probably did was the temple area, the outer court, was the only place large enough to accommodate that kind of crowd. So they went to the outer court. He says in verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, and day by day attending the temple. This Greek word for temples, hieron. It simply means, you know, the whole complex. You know, they would have had to go on into the holy place in order to worship under the Jewish dispensation. Most writers miss this point. They weren't going back to the temple for worship under the old Jewish way. They'd been baptized. They were worshiping, verse 42. They were taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week the breaking of the bread. They were worshiping, but they did this. They would go to the temple area, the outer court, because of the size of the area would accommodate such. And then it talks about them eating together day by day, enjoying this fellowship with each other, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They were doing that. Jude, in verse 12, talks about this fellowship meal that they were having together as love feasts. And later on in the church, it was described in that fashion. Now they would meet together, and they would enjoy their fellowship, and they were happy to do so. Being a Christian, that I have been baptized in vinegar, it doesn't mean that I have a frown on my face. It doesn't mean that I go around with such a... a, frown all the time. It is the source of great joy and happiness of my life to know that sins have been washed away and that I'm part of the body of Christ, that I'm part of the very body that prophets prophesied about and the apostles preached and Jesus died for. It was Jesus who said in John 13, 35, by this all people will disciples if you have love for one another. And so we should, with glad and sincere hearts, show our great love one for the other. Now let me add this. This does not mean that we should make a comedy club routine out of the worship service. Nobody's saying that. Nobody is trying to cartwheels in the aisle or nonsense like that. We should come together with a great deal of awe and reverence and respect for the worship, as we have done as our worship is very important. But I think the demeanor of their everyday life, verse 46, was a disposition of joy and how they are a part of God's divine people, the church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. You see, now that's not the Lord's Supper. That's a common meal. But notice no definite article is found in that phrase either in English or in the original. He's not referring to the Lord's Supper there. He's referring, referring to the meals that they shared together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they were happy to be together. They were not only enjoying 
the fact that they were children of God. They were enjoying each other and each other's company. Now, I think that's something that we can focus upon and should focus upon, the joy that we have in Christ Jesus. That's what I see these people and how they're like. Now, let me ask you a question. If you have somebody that's teachable and is in fellowship with others, he's very worshipful, she's a very worshipful person by praying and very reverent person. We see these people are together, they're united, and they're a benevolent people. They help those who are in need, genuinely in need. Joyful people. Would that kind of person be an attractive kind of person to you? I'm not talking about physical attraction here. I'm talking about their disposition and their way of life. Isn't that the kind of person you would like to be around? Well, notice what he says in this praising God and having favor with all the people. They were an attractive kind of people. It wasn't the people that was the problem. The people listened to Jesus and heard him gladly. It was the religious leaders that caused so much of the problem. And they were pushing the people away from Jesus. The same thing was true with the New Testament church. It was the leaders of the Jewish religion that were doing their very best to try to run it down, to try to cause problems, to try to get people uh, to go away from it and reject it. But yet, even though they were involved in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers and reverence, still they had favor with the people. And I think I understand why. Because I'd like to be around people like that. I would like to be around people who are teachable people, who are united, who are benevolent people. You know, nobody wants to be around time, but you want to be around a joyful person who is positive, that has a positive attraction. I believe that the Lord's church would be filled with people when we capture these elements in our lives. Christians had them, and people see that. They see people going to the congregation, and they see what it means to them and how important the people are to them and how important Bible study is very important to us and how important worship is. Worship is very important to us. It's a time of reverence and praise to God. That's an attractive kind of pull that the world needs. Now there's a pull an ungodly, worldly pull, a wicked, magnetic type of pull, trying to pull people in its direction. But there's a positive pull whereby people can see the kind of people that compose the church of the Lord and realize, I want to be like that. I want to be a part of that. But I don't need to stop there. They were fruitful. And he tells me that praising God And having favor with all the people, they were attractive kind of people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. More and more were Who does the adding? The preachers didn't add and the apostles didn't add, but the Lord did the adding day by day those who were being saved. 
more and more people were hearing the Word of God, and more and more people were seeing these people of God in their daily lives. And the end result? Why, the church was growing. It was fruitful. They were a committed And for that reason, they were a very fruitful people. And more people wanted to be a part of them. I think also, not only the adding of my day, but the growing of faith that they had, they were growing in faith. Those who had received the word of God, been obedient to the word of God, added to the church of the living God by the Lord himself. One might ask this question. You can help me answer it. What church was that? Verse 47. Praising God and the Lord added to their number, this text says, day by day. They translate that number because of the manuscripts. Some manuscripts don't have church. Some manuscripts do have the term church. And then uh, there's another word here that we won't get into right now about that. But they translated here, added to their number, English Standard Version. This is the save that we're talking about. What body is that? That's the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. It's the only one there was. The people that have given themselves to God and to Jesus Christ. Those are marks of faithfulness. I saw ten of them. This is 42 through 47. You might ask yourself the question, well, now that I've been baptized, now what? Here it is, a summary of the early church and what it is like. 42 through 47. And I have to ask myself the question, how well do I measure up? How well do I measure up to this matter of teachability or this matter of benevolence or this matter of being united or this matter of being joyful? How well do I measure up to the first Christians? And when I look about it and look at it from that standpoint, I see that there's some correction that needs to be done. So let's do it. If you've never obeyed the gospel, part of this wonderful fellowship Jesus died to create and bring about, then repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ tonight. If you understand enough so that you're knowing that you can't save yourself and that you need Christ, that at the point of immersion in water, your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ, and that now you're forgiven of sin, if you understand that, that you're being added to the body of Christ by the Lord, verse 47, then you're ready to be baptized into Christ tonight. If you've been unfaithful to the Christ, then I urge you to repent of that tonight. And we stand ready to help you in that regard. And we help each other to go to heaven. Because one day, this will all be over. And we'll be facing the great God that created heaven and earth. And we want to be prepared for that. And we can be by being obedient to his word. Won't you come tonight? While together we stand.